Romans 5, 6 to 11, we are in this, uh, this morning. Romans 5, starting in verse 6, reads, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Let's pray uh, just quickly before we look at this. Father, I ask now that my lips would be loosed and, and, uh, and given power to speak the word of God as truly from you, Lord. Let us hear it as a word from you, Father. You have ordained that the preacher would open the word and the people would listen and be transformed. You have done this for thousands of years, Father. And we humbly submit to your pattern, asking that you bless this time, fill your people with knowledge, with confidence, with obedience, and just all the fruit of the Spirit, Father, as we hear your word now. In Christ's name, amen. So the, especially this book of Roman, uh, Romans, the Bible really pieces together our salvation for us through the text. If you think about that, it, it's, it's quite a miracle that the realities in the cosmic realm between the all-powerful God and what goes on in your little heart and soul, in your place in the world, connect and are made real through the text that he gave us. It's sort of like when Einstein was contemplating the laws of physics, and he said one of the most incomprehensible things in my mind is that the world is comprehensible by my mind. That I can think of equations in my mind that actually correspond to reality. Well, much more we can understand and grow in and receive the things from God through the text that corresponds to his mind and gives us his mind. That alone is evidence that the scriptures are from God, they're God-breathed, and they're for our good. The word gives us and guides us through our experience. It guides us through our, what we ought to be in terms of our emotional response to people, situations, and God. It structures our view of the world and ourselves. And we pray and it promises that it will build up the body of Christ to work together in love for full maturity among us. So that's our hope. And that is why we strive and plow through and try to absorb and digest and obey all that is in the scriptures. Also, and if you think of this in terms of your own life, news reporting, when you listen to the radio or the television or maybe a clip on social media, news reporting always comes with some kind of moral suggestion to it, some kind of imperative, some kind of suggestion, right? It's rare that you hear a, a news story and there's not some sort of exhortation to respond to it. Either implicitly, we suggest that you feel sorrowful or we suggest that you feel you know, 
reporting always comes with some sort of moral response to it. And in the same way, as Paul is reporting on the, how salvation works, he is giving us the moral imperative, the human imperative in response to our salvation. And that is, how should you feel or think about the world? How should salvation change you? And that's, again, part of understanding the scriptures is not just understanding that we are Christians. It's understanding what does being a Christian look like? How does that affect my demeanor? How does that affect my work? How does that affect my marriage? How does that affect the way I treat other people? How does that affect the way I go through trials or receive bad news or good news? And so this, is, this reporting is beginning in the scriptures here to make a transition in chapter five from just the historic realities of the law and of religion and of faith into some of the imperatives of the Christian life. Starting in verse six, we really start to see, or in chapter five and chapter six, we start to see a transition to the human response. Although it's not a clear break, it's intermingled and intermixed. But we, looking at this passage, these mere uh, five verses, I have a very simple outline. It's just sort of two points. Number one, what does it say? And then number two, what does it mean? Okay, and so that, that hopefully is a simple pattern for us to follow. Essentially, what does this passage say? It says that God saved us while we were dead. That's what this passage says. That's what these six verse, five verses says. And so God is report, or Paul, sorry, God through Paul in the scriptures is reporting on the way that God intercedes into a rebellious world. Remember the first number of chapters really highlight the rebellion of mankind. The reason why we see such immorality breaking out among us is because of a rejection of God. And a rejection of God is not a neutral position where we say, well, <clears throat> you know, I'm just going to set God aside. He's not really for me. I have a different religious you know, viewpoint or I'm just going to remain neutral. Rebellion against God is a moral stance. And when God is rejected, idols are received in their place. And so a rejection of God does not leave mankind morally neutral. It leaves him as an idolater. And as we see, and again, in our, we see that playing out right now, um, illustrated very clearly in our culture, is that when God is pushed out, especially in secular humanism, man is elevated. So we become the idols we worship. That's the essence of the world around us. And it's the, it's the fruit of rejecting God. I heard it said, well, uh, this way, that the essence of heaven is when we say to God, your will be done. That's the Lord's prayer. The essence of hell is when God says to us, your will be done. The essence of heaven is when we say to God, your will be done. The essence of hell is when God says to us, your will be done. And that's what the beginning chapters of Romans speaks so clearly is that God gives us over to our idolatry. That's, that's the hellish essence of a culture that has been given over to sin. It is a plunging headlong without restraint. As we saw, there are three types of restraints, the conscience, natural law, and God's spiritual law. Those are three restraints that God places by his mercy to restrain and limit our sin. 
And when we blow through those restraints, God gives us over. And so there's a deadness. There is a moral, spiritual, intellectual, philosophical deadness that blankets all of mankind. A deadness that cannot be escaped by any means of our own. And in this world that is blanketed with deadness, with no access to God, Paul says in Romans 5, verse 6, while we were still helped at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So the gospel is good news because of the horrendous backdrop against which it is presented. And, and we're going to see why you cannot skimp on the bad news. Otherwise, you lose the good news. And we'll, we'll see that in just a minute. But Paul actually repeats this three different times in six verses, five verses, excuse me. So it's, this is a critical thought here. The timing and the condition of when God acted are on full display here. Verse six says, while we were still helpless. Verse eight says, while we were st- yet sinners. And verse 10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. This is, this is the foundation of Paul's argument, that God did this. While we hated him, while we were sinners, while we were helpless. Those are three different attributes that describe our deadness. And so at the beginning in this verse six, he says, while we were helpless. So what is helpless? It means powerless. It it means without any means of achieving a godliness, without any means of pleasing God, without any means of climbing into God's favorable books. We are literally helpless. You don't need to look any further than a child who's waddling around in diapers to understand what helpless means. They require everything from their mom and dad. I think if Bernice was on her, her last legs of starvation, I don't think she could get the fridge open. That is us in our deadness, starving, desperate for nourishment. And the fridge is full and stock and we couldn't even get our fingers in to prop it open. That's what helpless means. For while we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, in verse 8, what are sinners? They're unworthy. A sinner is somebody unworthy of love, unworthy of respect, unworthy of promotion. A sinner is a lawbreaker, somebody who deserves God's punishment, his just punishment. We're unclean. We're separated from God through our uncleanness. God is holy. We are sinners in our natural state. And then finally, what else does it say? Enemies. What are enemies? Well, enemies are rebels of God, haters of God, mockers of God, idolaters. These are the things that comprise an enemy. Somebody who seeks to tear God's name down and replace it with another. When you put those three things together, why would or why should God treat us in any other way besides destruction? Why should God, in his holiness, do anything but destroy us? And this is the logic in bringing this up. Here's the logic. He says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. Do you know what Paul's saying? It's a bit of an odd phrase. Do you know what Paul's saying there? He's saying, if we were anything but these things, God would not have bothered to send his own son in our place. It says one would hardly die for a righteous man. When you look down at the earth, 
You know, when God looks down at the earth and sees people who are put together and generally following his, his law and generally loving each other and generally doing what is right, there's no need for Jesus Christ. And so when we lose the depravity of sinners, we lose God's intercession. We lose what he did. When he looked down, he saw people who were dead who needed something. One will hardly die for a righteous man. <clears throat> Jesus himself said, it's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. I didn't came for the righteous. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. Those who believe they're in the category of righteous, Jesus says, of your own definition, you don't need me then. And again, this is why the judgment of, of sinfulness is what is meant to draw people. It, it, it's, the, it's the backbone of coming to God. God, I am a sinner. I, I have no other way. I am blind. I'm lame. I am crippled. I, I cannot on my own strength come to God. And our condition when God acted, the sinners, helpless, and enemies, it highlights the character of God. That's why Paul says it. Because in verse 8, it says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So the timing of this, the, the logic of this is that our sinfulness puts on display God's character. It puts on display his immense and unconditional love. Verse 8 tells us why he is laboring this point that it's why we were sinners that God acted. It says, but God demonstrated his own love. There's three things I want to show you about God's love on display. Because again, this is a, this is a concept that is uh, badly misused in the world today. God's love as if it is some, some way to just blow over or dismiss sins, or it's a way to excuse, um, you know, wickedness, or it's a way to even allow people to reject Christ because somehow God's love will cover their rejection. But this passage gives us three things about his love that we can embrace and praise him for. Number one, it's his own love. I'm preaching out of the, <clears throat> the New, New American Standard this morning um, because it just, the structure is so rich. And I know most of you have ESVs, but the, the grammar, the structure in here pulls so much out for us. It says God demonstrates his own love toward us. Did you hear that? He demonstrates his own love. This love that he demonstrates belongs to him it is of his character it is self-motivated it is not earned this love that god shows is his own it goes where it wants it is of the nature that he designs it is of his very essence it cannot be earned it cannot be lost it cannot be misplaced his love is his own it comes from himself it is pure it is internally consistent. His love is perfectly consistent. It never changes. It never morphs. It never is withdrawn. It's unconditional, this love that he demonstrates. It's his own. So if you are in Christ, you're not experiencing some weird mirrored version of your own love back upon yourself. Many of us struggle with our assurance because we believe God's love is like ours. And when we stop 
feeling affirmed or feeling loved, we believe that that's a reflection on God's love for us. We think I've blown it or when somebody else, you know, lets us down or rejects us, we think that that's how God sees us. And that's not true because God's love is self-existent. It's self-contained. It's not reflected. I mean, it's dimly reflected, but it's not changed by the failures of man to love like him. And so his love is his own. Number two, his love was manifest. His love was demonstrated. In other words, his love is not just theoretical. His love is not just a poem in a book. His love is not just described in flowery language. I'm sort of a verbal person. And so I think this is where I could be charged with failing to love like God, because my love is often verbal. I feel it and I say it and I write it and I, but am I demonstrating it? The Bible says God's love is manifest, which means demonstrated. He did something to show you his love. It did not remain theoretical, but he put it on <clears throat> display. And that's the third thing about his love is that it was in Christ specifically. His love is contained in Jesus Christ. His God, sorry, that's that's still that's still number two. I'll expand number two, and I remember the third one. In in Christ, it is demonstrated. That's what John three sixteen is all about. John three sixteen is God so loved the world that He did something. God didn't just weep over our failures. God loved the world so much that He gave His Son. What a demonstration! I wouldn't give my son for anybody, either one of them. I'll say that right now. <laughs> I would never give my children for anybody. <clears throat> and yet God demonstrated his love and put forward his son as the sacrifice. Again, why did he put him forward? Because when he saw the earth, he saw dead people. He saw death. And he said, my son can be a substitute to bring them back to life. He loved us in Christ, Christ coming to the earth. Christ said himself in the following verse, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Condemnation comes later. The love of God in Christ is a saving love. It is a sacrificial love. It's a demonstrated love. <clears throat> Again, how is it demonstrated? What is the key to this demonstration? It's that while we were enemies, he did it. While we were at our worst, his greatest love was shown. While we were at our worst, his greatest love was shown. Incidentally, if you want to know how much you love somebody, pick a time when they're at their worst and then analyze your thoughts towards that person. That'll tell you exactly where your love is for them. Because so many times our love for our spouses or our children really follows the line of their behavior. It follows the line of their performance. And when, our, and when they're at their worst, our love becomes its thinnest. And if you want to know how to demonstrate the strongest type of love, love somebody when they are least deserving. That's what marriage should look like. When your wife or husband is at their least deserving, your love comes out in full force. And it comes out against every fiber of your natural being because we want to give people what they deserve. We want to give people, we want them to make them feel the way they're acting. God's love did the opposite. 
When we were at our worst, he sent a love which cleansed and redeemed us and changed us. His love changed us in Jesus Christ. Lastly, his love was directed. So number one, his love was his own. His love was demonstrated. It was not just left in theoretical. And his love was aimed. It was directed at something. It wasn't shot off like a buckshot with no choke, off into a million different directions. A birdshot, I should say. I'm still learning my ammunition. His love was not just sprayed aimlessly into the cosmos. Look at your Bibles once again. God, God demonstrated his own love towards us. That's the key here for the direction of his love. It was not like a birdshot. It was like an arrow. It had one target. It had one destination. You know who that is? Us. That is the redeemed, the bride of Christ. Those who are beloved in God receive this demonstration of love. It lands home in their life. <clears throat> Remember, this love, given the fact that we know that it's his own and that it's manifestly demonstrated, we don't even say that God's love toward us is generic or that God's love even toward us is ill-defined and nebulous and all squishy. His love toward us is the demonstration of Christ. <clears throat> the love that you received from God at your worst was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. What is that saying? And I want to land this a little bit in, in, a, in a bit of a doctrinal couch here, a little doctrinal pedestal so we can put this in and look at it together. The fact that his love was directed, an analogy that I would use, his love is not like a, a mall salesman. Do you ever walk past those people in the mall and you don't want to make eye contact because you or the Bay or Sears or something, you know, they're going to start walking towards you and start waving some perfume or a sign up for this or clean your ducks or something. <clears throat> God's love is not like a salesman waiting to catch people and convince them that there's some great product in here. It was aimed directly at us. You could put it this way. It's like we were over at Baskin Robbins, if we're going to keep the analogy square. We were over at Baskin Robbins, you know, ordering something that was going to make us sick and give us a sugar high. And God's love came up behind us and, and grabbed us and, and gave us his reward. There was no persuasion. There was no sales talk. It was directed at you and you received it despite your best efforts to avoid it. God's love was aimed and it landed. His aim is perfect. It was aimed directly at us, those who believe. So we talked a couple weeks ago about penal substitutionary atonement. The fact that Jesus' atonement uh, satisfied the wrath of God. It was a penalty. That's what penal means. This week, we're looking at a different aspect of the atonement, and that is that it was definite. Definite atonement. That's sort of the couch I want to... <clears throat> shelf this doctrine in. This means that the cross accomplished precisely its intended scope. The death of Jesus Christ was aimed at and accomplished precisely what God designed it for. For those who are in Christ to redeem every believer for all time, every name that was written in the Lamb's Book of Life received their redemption at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Jesus' death and resurrection, believers past, present, and future. You say, well, you know, Tim, it sounds like you're reaching a little bit. That's not really what the text is saying. I just want to color that and shade that a little bit with Ephesians 1 verse 4. In the the introduction, Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. In his kindness, he chose you to receive this gift long before you were born. The atonement of Christ covered your sin before you were born, before you had breath to call upon him. On the cross of Jesus Christ, and R.C. Sproul tells it well here, he says, did his death actually save people or did God merely hope that it would? It had a definite purpose and it definitely accomplished it. This is why the words, it is finished upon the cross mean so much. It truly is finished. All of the redemption for all of the sins of all who would believe for all time were taken care of in that moment in history while we were enemies. In other words, the cross of Christ is not a passive display of love that awaits our recognition of its significance. It's not an an art installment that awaits our recognition of its beauty. It is an act of God which seeks us out and wraps itself around us and redeems us for his purpose. Every single person, Jesus said in John 6, everyone that the Father gives me, I will receive and I lose none. His redemption has has a definite scope and it is perfect in its scope. The human analogy of where we fail at this, and as a contractor, I'm speaking with my experience, when you go in at the beginning of a day or a week, you set an agenda. You say, I want that wall framed, I want it insulated, and I want the wiring and ductwork all in that wall, and I want a drywall with one coat of mud by the end of the week. That's the scope of our intention, and very often, the scope is not accomplished. We get toward the goal, we might get it boarded, we might even get, you know, all the insulation in or, but one of the trades cancels on us or somebody calls in sick and the scope is not accomplished. We as humans deal with the failed accomplishment of our intention all the time. God, when he put Christ on the cross, had a scope of redemption. It was every single believer for all time. And in the cross of Christ, he redeemed every single one of them in that moment. Our destiny was sealed and our sins were paid for because it said Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love that while we were sinners, he died for us. So that's what the text says. What does it mean? Paul goes on to describe what it means. He says, okay, the when is the foundation of my argument here. This is how I want you Christians to respond. This is how I want you to think. The love is the fulcrum point here for a simple application. If God loved us that much while we were enemies, how much more will he love you as his friend and his child? If God put his son on display to bear your sin while you hated him, while you were an enemy and a sinner, 
He says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more will we be saved by his life? If God did this while you were a sinner and an enemy, how much more will he do it for you as a child? That's assurance. You look back on the cross of Christ and you say, God did that for me while I hated him. God did that for me while I was an enemy. Jesus even said from the cross, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they are doing. They don't know that they're putting the Son of God to death. Later in Romans, Paul would say, if he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not graciously give us all things? This is why Christians who cry out and put God in handcuffs and say, God, you owe me this or you owe me that is crazy because God already gave us the most precious thing he could ever have given us. His son was already given for you and for me. God can't give more than that. Money and protection and freedom and all these, those things are a pittance. They're peanuts compared to what it cost God to redeem you, to show you his name. And so often we think, well, you know, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian, but I'm sure God doesn't, you know, why would God bother with me now? Why would God forgive me after this sin last weekend? Or why would God even, whoa, whoa, whoa. He saved you when you openly hated him. When you were a mocker and an idolater, he saved you. He pulled you in when you hated him most. Don't tell me he's going to throw you to the street because you made a mistake. Don't tell me that he's going to abandon you. There's no chance. Paul says, if he did this while you were an enemy, how much more will you be saved by his life? The point of this passage is that our our salvation tells us how we can have assurance. Again, there's two forms of wrath that Paul talked about. There's the wrath that is revealed from heaven now, Romans 1. And that is in the manifestation of sin, the addiction to sin. That's God's wrath now. Our sin is not what deserves wrath. It is God's wrath. But then there's also a wrath to come. A wrath where God will bring full justice to everything hidden and exposed for all of time. The Bible says, if you were delivered from wrath now, how much more will you be delivered from the wrath to come? If you were freed from your sin now, how much more will you be freed from the punishment of sin later? Again, the Exodus story is so critical here. The Israelites who believed in God painted the blood on the doorpost and God's wrath passed over. That is, that is the picture of us being protected by Christ from God's wrath against sin. Those inside the house were not being spared because of their righteousness. They were being spared because of the innocence on the doorposts of the blood. Christ was given for our redemption. Again, when, when Paul goes on to say, and not only this, but we exalt in God in verse 11 there. We exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ from, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. This is the grounds for our joy. The grounds for our joy is that, that God redeemed you when you were the worst. So a lot of people, when they come to Christ, they actually experience a lot of grief reflecting on their old life. And, and, and sometimes sins will come to remembrance. 
And it's almost like this gut check feeling. And it's like, oh, God, God doesn't know about that one. He does. He redeemed you in spite of your worst sins. And so as Christians, that's why we're free to be bold. That's why the Bible says that the righteous are bold as a lion, because we know that we're forgiven. We know that our sins have been paid for, but the wicked flees when no one pursues. When your sin is not covered, it makes you a coward. It makes you want to flee because you're worried someone's going to discover something in your life. Friends, the gospel gives us that boldness because God covered every sin and we rejoice in that. We don't look over our shoulders as Christians and say, well, what if God brings that up? What if God, what if that one sin what if God holds that in front of me and says, look, I wanted to redeem you, but this was just a bridge too far. God doesn't do that. He forgave the sinner, the, the thief on the cross right beside him. He forgave him completely and gave him total access to paradise. And so God showed you his love while you were a sinner. Our culture has, again, has collapsed into a self-consuming cancel culture because of this very idea. Because we have forgotten the gospel, our culture is going around like piranhas consuming one another because of past sins or past indiscretions. People being losing their careers because of some past event. And, and when we buy into that, we deny the gospel. And, and, and we treat one another as if our sins are forgiven. And so if a past sin comes up between brothers and sisters, we treat each other like God has treated us in Christ. He has forgotten it. He has separated Psalm 103. He has separated our sins as far as the East is from the West. Number two, what does it mean that God has given you life just as Jesus raised Lazarus? What did Lazarus do to help with that resurrection process? All he did was lift his legs after he came to life. He did nothing in the resurrection process. He responded to the voice of Christ. And he got up and came out of the tomb. In the same way, God brings us to life in Christ. He does all that work. But we do the living. God brings us to life, but we do the living. So when Christians come to life in Christ, we don't merely say, oh, well, isn't that God has done a great work. Now I'll sit back and enjoy my forgiveness and hide out in my, you know, my houseboat or, you know, off in an ivory tower somewhere. I, you know, I'll never No, We come to life in Christ and we become the living agents full of the truth of the gospel. If we were reconciled in our death, we are saved in his life. We are meant to live a new life. Christ settles the work. You can no more come to Christ than you can raise yourself up from the dead. But in the very same breath, we need to acknowledge that we do the living. We do the seeing. Although Christ made us, gave us sight when we were blind, we do the seeing. Christ lives in us. 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 10. This is part of the rejoicing at the end. We, we actually did this passage last week. But Paul says... But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. He didn't give me the gospel in vain. But what happened when I more than all of them, I, but the grace of God within me, whether it is they 
or I, so we preach and so you believe. And so Paul says, when I came to life, God lived in me, yet I labored, yet it was Christ in me. That's the Christian life. God is in us, but we are living, but God is living in us. It is one and the same. We can't separate our lives now from the life of Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice and we exalt in God through Christ. Your life becomes a walking testimony of worship to God. You become a vessel filled with life instead of a life pursuing death. And joy comes because you know that God has settled your future. He has saved you in life and he will save you in death. Your joy is the evergreen assurance of safety in God. Again, if he has saved us in life, he will save us in death. Just before we close, I want to read one more time. And we're, we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. I want to read one more time Isaiah 43. Now that we've heard this passage. But now, says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Why did Israel exist? Because God formed them. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Don't fear today because look back on what I've done for you. Look back on the cost that I paid. I have called you by name. You are mine. I have called you by name. You are mine, says the Lord. Has God called your name? Then you belong to him. You need not fear. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. That's a reference to the Red Sea and, of course, to the Jordan River. God brought them through. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom. He put them under judgment in order that Israel would be saved. In your sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and peoples in exchange for your life. Who did God give in exchange for us but the, the true man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ? Do not fear, I am with you. I'm with you. I didn't just save you, I'm with you now. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. We are new creations in Jesus Christ. We are new creatures. We belong to God. We've been stamped by, we've been purchased by him. We belong to him and him alone. This is why we're called slaves of Christ. We're not autonomous creatures doing what we want, what seems right to us. We are slaves to Christ. We were bought by him. But look at the privileges of belonging to this master. He will be with us. He will call us by name. He will, he will protect us. He will give us final salvation. And so as we go... Just three exhortations. Meditate on the truth about your salvation. When and how did it happen? Command your heart using your mind. When you feel that God is distant, when you feel that God has not done what he said he would, look back on what he's done for you and say like David, why are you cast down on my soul? For in God alone, my heart hopes. 
Number two, God has the power and you do the living. Don't mix those two up. You do the living, but it's not your power. It's God's power in you. There's, there's, there's two ways to fall into a ditch there. Number one, it's to believe that we do, that we're the power, that we can muster up the energy to do what we think needs to happen. And we forget that it's God's power. Number two, we can say, well, it's all God and we can do nothing. We forget to live. God's power is in us to live. Don't mix those up, but let them both exist. Like Paul say, I labored harder than anybody else, but not yet. And but not I, it was Christ. I worked harder than anybody else, but not I, Christ. Don't ever confuse who saved you and who secures you. It's not your living that secures you. It's Jesus Christ on the cross in history past that secures your destiny. And finally, let go of your uncertainty and your doubt. Doubt is pride in self. Doubt is ultimately, and self-pity is ultimately a product of pride. You know that? It's when you look at your life and you say, I should be doing much better. I expect more of myself. I, you know, the kind of person I am, I should be miles ahead of, that's pride. And, and, and poor, poor me, you know, I haven't become who I hoped I'd become. That's all pride. Joy comes from a godly humility. I did nothing. I deserve nothing. Everything I have is from Christ. It's outside of our ability. It's outside of what we can earn. And we rejoice because we have nothing to glory in except God's mercy and his grace and his love. That's why Christians are joyful. Not because sin doesn't exist, but because our sins were at our worst when he saved us. And we rejoice in that. And we invite others to come in and enjoy that. The gospel is not the gospel unless you both give the severity of sin, but you also give the weightlessness of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper and, and sing a final hymn.